Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Today's guest, William Green, is a professor of education at Southern Oregon University, which has rapidly become a center for the International Holistic Education Conference. I met William eight or nine years ago, and we shared immediately our great love for holistic education. But most importantly, William is at the center for bringing holistic education to a worldwide audience. Hey, William, welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. We're really happy to have you here today. So one of the uh, aspects of your work that I've always been kind of in awe of is your ability to bring an international audience to the holistic education community. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, um, yeah, I mean, bringing people together, I think, is... <laughs> is maybe a, a one contribution I, I can support, you know, and be a part of and with the team that we have here at, at SOU and the facility and the location, we, we saw it as an opportunity to be able to provide a hub for people, a place for coming together, for inspiration, um, and being able to reach out to the some of the networks that we've been a part of over our careers and that others have been a part of has enabled us to widen that circle as we've looked to hosting conferences here. So I think that uh, that's been a, a big part of our, our excitement about being able to have a place that brings people together that we, that other people see as one of many models for holistic practices and holistic work. Uh, and then of course it also provides a springboard for us to be able, us from, from our local area, to be able to participate uh, more internationally and globally in work that's happening in networks elsewhere. Well, when you do that, I mean, at the last conference, there was a strong um, Asian, uh, Asian representation from Thailand and Korea. How, how do you actually go about it? And, and also, there must be a considerable expense uh, in bringing all that together. And I ask you this because there is so much of a need for uh, holistic educators to, to network and to understand one another. And I, I, like I say, I'm a little bit in awe of it. So what are some of the specifics? How do you actually go about it? <laughs> Well, uh, we were uh, inspired initially by the conferences that um, the group at the University of Toronto and uh, OISI were putting on um, under Jack's leadership and others uh, in the uh, Toronto area and the ability to bring you know, people from different places, from different countries and different states to a place where they could uh, dialogue and learn from each other. We... Here at SOU, a number of us have been involved for many years with um, groups uh, such as the um, Pacific Circle Consortium, which is a group that was founded maybe, I want to say, 37 or 38 years ago uh, with a group at the University of Hawaii 
in Honolulu. And that group began to uh, cast a net around the Pacific, and particularly uh, Pacific Island nations, and um, East and Southeast Asia, and it included largely the countries that border on the Pacific side of the circle as well, all the way down to New Zealand and Australia. And uh, that group has focused over its long run on various issues of policy and curriculum, and maybe 15 years ago or so, uh, part of my involvement with that group was to maybe help turn the spotlight a little bit more on teacher education and teacher education for the future. Uh, a few years ago, I got introduced to the Asia-Pacific Network for Holistic Education. Is that is that with Yoshi? Yes, it's with Yoshi. Yeah, Yoshi's been a guest on this podcast, excuse me, but as has Jack Miller from Toronto. Good. So, yeah, and that um, that group really uh, 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 helped expand my own uh, awareness and network in what was happening uh, in the Asia region. And um, so through some of those contacts, we were able to uh, establish a couple of relationships that have blossomed into some beautiful uh, connections. One of them, for example, is the school in Thailand that we have now been able to organize a memorandum of understanding between our institutions with, and uh, we've had a couple of exchanges happen where they've brought some of their students and faculty here to SOU, to Ashland, Oregon, and uh, been able to involve themselves in local schools and in our conference, the, the last conference that you referenced, and then we were wow. able to take a group of our own faculty and some of our student teachers from our elementary education program to the school in Bangkok about a year and a half ago and spent uh, some time in their classrooms and in some of the workshops that they organized for us. So, yeah, those were just a few examples of the different networks that made it possible for us to be able to maybe uh, be aware of and invite people to our last conference. That's great. Um, it's interesting because uh, Josette had a master's student that she mentored and actually ended up coming to the conference, and now he's teaching over in uh, at the school in Thailand. Oh, is that Jason? Yes, Jason. Jason's was Josette. Josette worked with him for years. Jason and his wife, yeah, they're both there. And yeah, I, I was so yeah. uh, so thrilled to hear that they made a connection at our conference with Prapapat and some of the other uh, folks at Rungaroon School. And then I was over there just in um, I was just over in November and was able to spend some time with Jason. And we had a, a quite a good talk about what it was like for him and Lindsay to find themselves suddenly at this beautiful holistic Buddhist. A Thai-oriented school uh, on the outskirts of Bangkok and what it was like for them in their early months of, of teaching there. That's great. I love the connections. And of course, that's what this podcast is so much about. And and people like yourself making that, making that real. But for our listeners, SOU is Southern Oregon University. And as William just said, you just said William is in Ashland, Oregon. So I've been there, of course, many times, and it's kind of a small university. How do you have the resources and the ability to bring that international audience together? Well, um, it's not through the benevolence of, um, of a large bank account anywhere. 
It's uh, <laughs> we we knew from the beginning that it it was going to need to be a self support run conference and that in order to sustain itself, we would need to stay in the black each year in our financial records and uh, to not put our school of education in debt. And as long as we could manage to do that, we would be able to to offer it again. So uh, with the generosity and help of some of our invited speakers or keynotes um, that have you know accepted probably far less of a stipend or honorarium than they might have gotten at a larger conference, we were able to, you know, to build something that gives a, you know, that was able to pay for itself and give us a little bit of seed money for the next time that we host the conference here. That's great. Well, you're a professor of education. Is that a right way to talk about your title uh, there at SOU? That's my title, I guess. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So how do you have time as, I mean, you have class loads, research, um, uh, and all that you do there. How do you have time to be at the center of of this conference and this international community? Well, you know, I guess it just goes to that idea of of finding the things that that put us into flow, you know, into some state of um, exhilaration and (laughs) self-actualization. And being able to work on something that um, uh, that's that I feel so um, so uh, committed to really, and at this point in my career, I I think that that's that's part of where you you just find the energy and you find the desire. Uh, but really, I'll tell you where where it, it lies is with my colleagues who are part of the planning and part of this um, you know that whole. Um, encouragement and motivation for each other, uh, but also from the students and uh, our local teachers who become part of the conference too. And I, I, I really, I mean, I see that as kind of an extension of my own teaching and scholarship in the sense that if we're not able to give our students the opportunity to network with us and to to see some of the things that we we value in our classrooms and in our teaching in real life and in in real examples of people who are doing the work uh, then i think we're 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 doing them a a big disservice we're not following you know our own um, perhaps our own um, vision for what it's like to um, to go beyond just words and beyond talk and beyond even classroom experiences but to be able to take them out of that and put them into a larger circle of a larger community of holistic, um, holistic visionaries. So you talked about this as uh, an aspect of self-actualization and being in a flow and just actually enlivening and enriching and energizing rather than depleting. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to holistic education or to the way you envision it or live it in a personal sense? I would be happy to give you a, a little quick sketch of that. Let me first backtrack just a little bit to talk about my use of, of that term self-actualization and, and the use of flow. So, I mean, both of those can be seen in a, through, you know, as a very sort of um, having been germinated in a Western perspective of perhaps psychology and maybe human development. And um, a colleague of mine who's who's been a big part of 
my work here and a, a big part of our conferences uh, recently shared with me um, a really intriguing idea from a First Nations perspective, from an indigenous perspective about that idea of, uh, of self-actualization and how, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy, that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the goal, I, I suppose, to be, to be a self-actualized individual. And it's also from, you know, a Western perspective, a very individual uh, orientation but um, my understanding of a more First Nations perspective and perhaps Indigenous perspective might be that it's, it's just the beginning where we move from that to more of a community actualization and then from community actualization to, to cult cultural perpetuation. And um, that idea has, has really been, um, has really stuck in me uh, these, these last few weeks as I've, you know, as I've thought about how I live that and where that has, why that's resonating with me as, as it is. I mean, we, we, we understand that, that, you know, the idea of seven generations and how, um, how planning in, in, in many indigenous cultures and indigenous educational perspectives involve that longer range, you know, and, um, it really made me think about, uh, the work that I do with my students in regard to self and self-development, which is really important to me. That's a, that's a big part of, for me in teacher education, self-development is, is the umbrella. It's the container for content, theory, skills, practice. It, to me, it's all in the circle of self-development. So when I think, well, where does that come from for me and my holistic view and practice? So since I've become an older adult, I suppose, and, you know, learned more, acquire more knowledge in the world, and my vocabulary has widened, and I've been able to think about looking back at my own teaching history and my practice. I wouldn't have called my early practice holistic education. I didn't know that word in the early 1980s, but um, I look back and I see that actually it was holistic in, in a large sense. And um, I, I had a lot to learn, and I still do. But when I think about how I, how I started and the degree to which I, I felt the, the spiritual nature of a classroom and of connecting with students, that I wouldn't have, again, I wouldn't have used the word spirituality in those days. But I can see that those uh, those early seeds were there. So you know when you when you live a life and then you you suddenly you know become touched by something, you're touched for a reason. I think there's there's something that's already a truth or a uh, an, an embodied sense that what you're learning or what you're hearing, what this new thing is is right and it's true and I guess it was kind of that way for me when I started um, started this this latest journey with holistic education and say the last 10 or 12 years has really been a, a rediscovery of of that probably earlier truth that was felt but not necessarily understood and and that that is thank you so much for that I mean I think any many of us as holistic educators can 
both resonate with it and just accept our own version of that as accurate within ourselves. And I know for me, um, the uh, learning in relationship has just, it's just entirely changed my understanding of self and universe and relation and community and just all the way through. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective. Often featuring a wise fool or trickster animal, they can be humorous with many shades of meaning shining through the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years with great effect, not only for the listener, but for me as I have learned so much about myself through recounting these stories. Today's teaching story is called, How Foolish Can a Man Be? The wise fool was found pouring wheat from the jar of his neighbors into his own at the communal wheat store. He was taken before the judge. I am a fool, the wise man said. I don't know their wheat from mine. Then... Why did you not pour any wheat from your own jars into theirs, demanded the judge. Ah, but I know my wheat from theirs. I am not such a fool as that. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. How is it that SOU is okay with this? Because it's obviously not in the traditional uh, university systems and you're you're part of the Oregon university system. So do you ever get any blowback or feedback that what you're doing doesn't uh, work uh, in, in, the, um, in, in your professional community at SOU? Well, you know, I, I came to Southern Oregon University from, uh, from Honolulu. That was our last stop before coming to Oregon and the University of Hawaii there. And um, uh, and the University of Hawaii is a research one institution. SOU is not. We, we're a, a regional comprehensive uh, university and we serve um, a fairly high number of first generation college students. Uh, a demographic that I've, I've just been grateful ever since I started here to be able to have the opportunity to, to touch lives that, you know, for the first generation in a family that's sending their children off to school, to college. And I think that the, the uniqueness of the location here, Ashland is known as um, kind of a cultural, I guess you could say a cultural pocket and um, one of many, you know, in Oregon, but it's a, it's a lively town. There are a wide variety of um, cultural opportunities in the arts and, and literature and writing and outdoors, orientation, and so the values that have sort of steeped uh, in steeped here in the hearts of people and who live here and, the, and in the uh, campus community, the SOU community, 
um, reflect that to some extent. They reflect a certain way of thinking, way of knowing that uh, that I like to think is um, more than just a very stoic kind of traditional academic campus. And I feel like because of its size, we're about 5,000 students roughly, varies from year to year, but and the fact that people here uh, have really chosen to be here, that many people uh, on our faculty and and students too have have had other choices, you know, to teach elsewhere, to study elsewhere, and those who who remain, you know, or choose to come here uh, are are those who sort of find that affinity with um, a kind of openness, a kind of open heart, open mind to to new ways of thinking about. So that's part of why I think there isn't the kind of blowback that might occur in a different in a different kind of place. Um, I've have felt really fortunate to be able to be in a place that values teaching to a great degree, and values service to a great degree, and values scholarship to a great degree, but not to the obsessive degree that occurs in many other places. So it allows faculty who are finding their niche and finding their connection to to things that they're they're excited about and interested in learning about. It gives it gives us a lot of flexibility, I think, to do that. And so my own teaching has been along that path of being able feeling free enough to be able to explore while still teaching classes that meet uh, teacher standards and practices commission standards for licensure and to still be able to produce, you know, course outcomes that satisfy the accreditation bureaus. But, um, but to be able to begin each class, for instance, in a sacred circle with a dollar store candle in the middle, you know, and uh, lights out and an opportunity to come together in a way that allows us to see each other in, in new ways. So even though we begin with that piece, we begin with, you know, really an opportunity to show up and to be present and to be aware of, um, of each other and of ourselves, then, you know, gradually that, that circle expands and dissolves into content, but in a way that is never very far from those precious moments in class where the va, that space between people, is just pulsing with a kind of um, a kind of love. I my heart's just just beating with you as you speak, William. It's it's beautifully said and and rendered. I wonder, have you followed any of your students um, after they've graduated and seen any uh, you know kind of outcomes or choices that they've made? Yeah, we have not not real systematically, you know. I think that's a not just our thing here that we have neglected. I think it happens a lot of places, but I think we've been aware of the uh, importance of that. We have done some things that really allow us to, I guess, follow up and track and get feedback from students who've been through our our program, our programs, I should say. Uh, one of them was about ten years ago. We introduced the idea of core reflection into our elementary ed and our secondary master's program. And we had a group of students that uh, 
we felt really connected to through that work in core reflection. And we decided when they got jobs the following year and were suddenly out of our nest and out into the world, we thought about how heartbroken we would be if we were to find out that suddenly they had kind of forgotten the ideals that they were connected with in the program and forgot about what they found out about themselves and instead began to be socialized into maybe some ways in education that are more, you know, towing the line, sort of ilk, status quo. And we thought, well, this is an opportunity to sort of keep those cords connected a little bit longer. So we began to meet with them, invite them back once a month to come into our houses. We'd trade professors' houses and provide snacks for them when they'd come and hot beverage or something. And we'd just turn a tape recorder on and put it out in the middle of our group of maybe we started out with different numbers, 10, 12, sometimes up to 15 people and maybe three or four faculty members. And we just let them talk. We just, we just let them talk. And we didn't have an agenda. We were very intentional about that. We didn't have an interest in teaching anything. We just were interested in allowing them an opportunity to connect. And then we, we were curious if the process of being able to reconnect to ourselves through the work of core reflection and through other uh, approaches that we've used, whether it would make a difference for them. So we did that for the first year, and then the second year, and then the third year, and then we found out that some of the teachers that started with us kept wanting to come back each year. And so the group would uh, would continue to change and evolve each year as new students were added to it, but then some, you know, for different reasons stopped coming. Or, um, But we had a core group of about six that stayed with us for, I think, seven years. And we ended up writing a chapter about them and about, you know, what it was like in this journey of, of being a beginning teacher and but being able to to have this um, this connection. So through that work, we were able to and now many of those teachers that have been part of that group are our cooperating teachers or our supervising teachers for student teachers in the field. So that has been that's been a real that's been that was a real gratifying project to be a part of. And in other ways, we continue to see, you know, students come back. If they've gotten undergraduate degrees, they come back for master's work. And we're now putting together a, a special endorsement in holistic education. Well, it's not called an endorsement, a specialization in uh, holistic education for um, MED students and uh, a minor in holistic education for those who might be in our elementary ed or licensure program for undergraduates. Let me add one more thing, Bob. I'm sorry, I keep uh, I keep tacking on here. No, go rock and roll. I mean, it's just fantastic stuff. So please. The other way that uh, the other way that we 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 are able to find out some about our students is is through the work of our conference, and I think that, as I mentioned earlier, was really we started that in 2014. So I think, you know, that venue of being able to bring local teachers and even our current students who have been a part of some aspect of our holistic journey and and courses and to be able to bring them into a larger community gives us a chance to see they get re-energized, they get excited, the inspiration comes, and and they have words, too, to be able to share things with that holistic community that 
tie them into it and I think bring a lot of validity to the work that they're already doing. It's just it's just great stuff, William. And unfortunately, podcast time is what it is. And I like to offer to our guests the opportunity to kind of give a parting comment and especially keeping in mind that there's lots of people, lots of listeners who are, we might say, on the fence. They're students and they still have that aliveness in them and they really want to know a different way, but they're a little bit nervous and can they get a job and, 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 and parents too. Parents are very concerned with, I know the public schools don't necessarily do a great job. I know a holistic approach is really useful. So what words would you bring to the people who are just about to move over to what we might call a more holistic perspective? Well, my my words would be this, I think, uh, that there are many ways to to think about what a holistic approach looks like. It's not, um, there isn't one holistic approach. Uh, I teach a philosophy of ed class, and we talk about philosophies from essentialism to existentialism, right? And uh, you can be a very holistic essentialist. You can be a holistic existentialist. I remember uh, at our last conference, Jack, uh, Jack Miller's words in our opening reception, and you might have been there, Ba, when he said very simply, the role of a holistic educator is to be a loving presence. And I guess if I was going to make a quick comment to, uh, to those going into the field or to parents or to uh, policymakers, um, that, you know, when we think about educating, educare, the root of education, to draw out that which is within, and to think about our role, if our role is to be a loving presence, I mean, how can you go wrong with that? We can still meet standards. We can still teach content. We can still, you know, practice new skills. And we can do it with, with love and compassion and um yeah, I guess that's what that's what I would say. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkable educators. That's all one word, remarkable educators, and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young. And transcription and production is by Josette Lovemore. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Bob Lovemore reminding you that Holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.